HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Heritage Radio Network. Today's program was brought to you by Hearst Ranch. www.hearstranch.com. Hello, welcome to the Heritage Radio Network's Farm Report. It's Friday, September 25th. You're listening to Heather Hyman and Lorenzo Ragineri today. Hello there. We are um, happy to have Ken Clem with us from the Buffalo Guys on the line today. This is his second um, appearance on the Heritage Radio Network, and we're very happy to have him back. I'm um, happy to be here. Hey, Ken. Hello. So um, just to give you a brief overview, the Buffalo Guys are dear friends of Heritage Foods and Heritage Radio Network. Well, um, basically, in the last broadcast that we talked to Ken about, um, we talked about the health and taste advantages of buffalo meat over beef. Um, Ken right now is experimenting with some new techniques, so today we want to discuss what the Buffalo guys are calling their experimental farming operations. So Ken, would you break down for the listeners here what your experimental farming operation consists of? Well, what, we're, what we've got, uh, we have some dry land farm ground. That's farm ground that's not irrigated. And uh, we have improved our farming practices over the years, but we felt like we've reached a plateau. So we have embarked on a new course where we're doing uh, a no-till polyculture uh, farming operation. And uh, I will uh, be pleased to explain what that is as we go forward. But uh, the polyculture portion of it is where we're planting um, no, we're planting several different types of seeds instead of just a monoculture. And what we're learning is uh, for instance, uh, we, this fall we planted uh, five different crops all together. It was a rye, I mean a triticale, which is a, a wheat rye cross, and a vetch, which is a nitrogen-fixing legume. It takes nitrogen out of the air and puts it in the soil where the plants can use it. We plant a clover, which is also a nitrogen-fixing plant. And then we plant three of the brassicas, which is uh, canola and uh, radish and turnip. And those help uh, hold the nitrogen in the soil and break up hard soil pan. And what we're finding is is that there's a, a benefit of all these different species being planted together, uh, that you get a greater uh, results and healthier soil 
from the diversity that comes from all these different plants versus a monoculture. So that's the polyculture part of it. We'll have a, that's our fall mix that I described, and we'll experiment with different plants and, as we go. And then we'll also have a summer mix and a spring mix that we'll plant on different ground. And what we're finding, for instance, uh, I went up to North Dakota and visited with some gentlemen up there that are doing it, and uh, we had a spade. We were out in the field, and we were digging up uh, some of the nitrogen-fixing plants uh, called legumes. And when they're fixing nitrogen, they actually make little um, little nodules on the root hairs. You can actually see them, and then you stick your fingernail in and break them open, and you can tell if they're active. Well, as we were digging around in this one field, none of them were fixing nitrogen. We just couldn't find any. We walked over to the field right next, right next to it, two or three steps over, and this was a polyculture field. And we happened to stick the spade in the ground and dug up, a, I think it was a vetch plant, which was right next to a corn plant. And that vetch plant had all sorts of little nodules on it. And as we took the roots apart, we learned that the roots from the vetch appeared to be fused to the roots from the corn. So those two plants were working together. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> and, and the little tubers of the corn, the little root tips of the corn, I just happened to take one off and put it in my mouth because taste is a very, very important uh, indicator of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it was like having the most purest sugar that you just put on your tongue. And this was the root that you this tasted? This was the root of the corn. Which are usually yeah. bitter, right? Uh, well, no, corn, corn is, is a Swedish plant. But what you have is two plants here. That corn is making those roots uh, that way for a reason. Obviously, the vetch liked it. So the, the two of them are working together. Corn is a plant that needs a lot of nitrogen, and vetch is a plant that produces nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And somehow they've got this symbiotic relationship between the two of them. And when you start putting all sorts of different plants in there, there's all sorts of different connections that we're not even aware of and likely never will be. So we just put it in the ground and, and see what Let works. Mother Nature take her course. That's right. That's now, right. Uh, let me ask you, are these well-documented processes, or are you right on the cutting edge of these discoveries? Well, I can't find much documentation about this. I've, I've seen some documentation. Actually, the stuff I found was written at the end of the last century, well, two centuries ago, in the late 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, before chemical fertilization. At, at the advent of chemical mm-hmm. fertilization, that was pretty much the end of experimentation to try to create natural fertilization. Exactly. Uh, so we've had a big change since then, and a the focus has been how to get oil to fertilize ground, basically. So I do believe we're on a cutting edge, uh, and uh, it, that's why I went to North Dakota. There's some gentlemen up there that have been doing this for a few years, and this polyculture is an integral part of what we're trying to do to restore the health to our farmlands. And then we're coupling that with the no-till aspect of this uh, process. It's actually a three-phase thing. We have the polyculture, the no. no-till, and the cover cropping. Okay, so the no-till is referring to less labor? Uh, a no-till is a, a conventional farming practices. This is different than conventional farming. Conventional farming, you go in there with a plow or a disc mm-hmm. or a, sometimes a sweep or a weed rotter. There's lots of different things to till the ground and to keep the weeds down and break the soil up, and, uh, and, and, and that's how you keep the weeds down. Mm-hmm. What we have learned, the reason we've reached this plateau and haven't been able to increase our soil fertility, increase the organic matter in our soils, is because we continue to till. Okay. When we till the ground, you've got to remember the soil is just alive with microorganisms. 
Mm-hmm. And they all have a very specific depth that they live in, a certain amount of oxygen, light, warmth. And when you till the ground, you, you change all that, and you wind up killing millions of, of the macroflora. So, and you also change the air composition. There's actually less in the soil because it breaks the soil down into finer pieces, and there's less air in there. So you change the bacteria that's in the soil, and that's what was happening. We would, be, we would bring up the fertility during the growing season, and then we actually use the buffalo to do the harvesting. We, we turn the animals in there, and they harvest the crops. Uh, so we would inoculate the ground with their urine and their, and their feces and the bacteria that they bring, and that's all good and healthy. That's normal. But then we would go in there and till, and we would set back the ground, and we just, we, we just couldn't get over this. So now we're going to this no-till. We bought a special drill for this. It's a special a grain drill. This is a drill that drills the, drills the crop into the ground. I don't know why they use the word drill. It's actually these heavy discs that actually mm-hmm. open the earth just a little bit and drop a seed in there one at a time. Okay, so it's kind of like one of those rounded um, plates, and it just like pretty much cylinders down into the ground, making like a nice, uh, like I guess yeah. you would just call it like what? Like well, what they use like to make a, a hole plate. on a golf course. Um, Not exactly. No, imagine a dinner plate, except made of steel and sharp, very sharp along the edge. And there would be maybe 30 of them facing on edge. And then this machine is above it, pressing all of those discs into the ground. And they're at a slight angle, so it actually opens the earth just a little bit as you pull it with the tractor. And in that little bit of opening, there's a tube right there that drops the seeds in. And then there's a wheel behind that that comes along and kind of packs the earth a little bit and closes that little opening that you've made. So it's a very minimal disturbance to the soil, which is key mm-hmm. because weeds like when the soil's disturbed, and we're trying not to disturb the soil. We're trying just to insert the seeds right into the soil without having to till. So what, what's the name of these folks in North Dakota with whom you've been working? Um, Let's see. Boy, that's a great question. I, I have a good memory, but sometimes it's just not very long. And that was, uh, you know, uh, uh, let's see. I've got his name here. I can look it up while we're talking. Oh, that's okay. So in any event, are you guys going to start documenting your findings in some journals? Or what? what's, mm-hmm. what's the next step here for, these, for this research? Well, we're taking pictures and uh, documenting what we're doing as far as the different crops, when we're putting it in the ground, and, uh, you know, what kind of rainfall we're getting, and... And, uh, and that, that's how we'll document it. And, of course, no two years are the same, particularly up here in the High Plains. So what we're doing this year is, is going to be different than any other year. But the important part of this is that you have such diversity with the different species mm-hmm. so that as the weather changes and the conditions are different, it's, it's going to favor maybe one species over a different, over a different one. Now, so, no. Yeah, continue. I'm sorry. So that that that's how we're building this is uh, just by trial and error. And it seems as if you're also documenting this online right now, currently as the project's happening on Facebook. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. At, at the Buffalo Guys, uh, not our website, thebuffaloguys.com. Although there is a link at thebuffaloguys.com to the our, our Facebook page. But if you just go to Facebook and type in the Buffalo Guys, uh, you'll you'll see us pop up. Anyone can become a fan and follow this project and view your pictures and ask you questions there as well. Right. You bet. We're entering the era of the tech-savvy farmer. Uh, what'd you say? We're entering the era of the tech-savvy farmer. <laughs> the tech-savvy
savvy farmer? The yeah. Tech sa- the, yeah, the tech savvy. One of my farmers, actually, one of the pig farmers I work with, actually. We call them out here. High tech rednecks. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. well, <laughs> I don't know. That's the nicest name. But um, one of my farmers was actually asking me to help set them up a, a Facebook page to try and, you know, spread the word a little bit about what they're doing on the farm so that more of the younger generation can really start to get more interest in uh, farming again. So we're hoping that maybe your page can uh, bring some of that, you know, interest back into the younger generation. Right. Well, that's, you know, that's what we have is a tremendous disconnect between the urban people and the rural people, and the urban people, they all get their food from rural places. Mm-hmm. And they have, a large portion of the urban people have a natural desire to understand about the land because, you know, we're, we're people that are, for millennia have been part of the land. And we have this disconnect. And that disconnect, that unknowing about what really happens in the natural world and how, what it takes to get food to the grocery store is unhealthy for society. Uh-huh. So, well put. Yeah, so we, we, we try to share this with our customers as much as possible, and we're in a unique position to be able to do that because we actually uh, work the land, but we also have products that we sell direct to consumers off our website and in grocery stores. And uh, so it gives us a unique, uh, a unique opportunity to share that information and try to bridge that divide. So you've demystified crop rotation and polyculture practices for us. Now could you explain, please, Ken, how these different methods of farming affect the taste profiles of your end product? Well, we don't feel that it will affect the taste profile of our product. And uh, by effect, I meant positively. Yeah, right. You uh, don't feel it will? We, we really don't think it will, uh, but that remains to be seen. Some of these crops we're planting, like the radishes and the turnips and the uh, canola, especially the radishes, you know, they're fairly strongly flavored, but there, you know, you only put maybe a half a pound an acre of seed out there. It doesn't take much, mm-hmm. so we're not we're not expecting to have any major flavor changes. We're we're raising a species that is not very highly prone to flavor changes by feed. Uh, you know, pork is much different. It's easily to influence, easy to influence the flavor profile of pork, but but uh, bison are not that way. I think mostly what this is about this is about making the health of the land better mm-hmm. and finding ways to, uh, you know, minimize our, our, our fuel usage and minimize the tilling. And in this part of the country, moisture retention and, and moisture, uh, the, use, the use of moisture, which we call the water cycle, we actually have a term for it here, uh, is, is key. And anytime we can prevent tilling the ground, it makes a big, big difference. Okay. And there's one other thing that we do too, which is a, called a cover cropping. This is like right, a three-phase thing. That's the third part thing. of the operation that's we didn't get part. to. Yeah, the cover cropping, mm-hmm. and the cover cropping is is really what it's all about. Uh, in order to understand cover cropping, you first have to realize that the soil is a living organism. It's not just dirt; it's a living organism. There are millions and millions of organisms in just a, a square inch of soil. All different sizes, uh, the smaller you look, the, they're, they're there, all the way down to the single-cell organisms, and they all eat something. Uh, some of them eat each other. There's predator organisms, but there's the base organism. Just like in the ocean, you have the, the krill and the, and the, you know, the, the basic uh, animals in the ocean. Uh, you have the same thing in the soil, and the plants are what feed them. So with chemical uh, farming practices and even organic farming practices, to some extent, uh, because of the tilling part of organic, mm-hmm. the, the, the microbes are not being fed properly. 
And to create proper fertility, those microbes have to be fed properly. And that's what cover cropping does. Okay. You determine they're, they're animals. They need a certain amount of nitrogen. They need a certain amount of carbon. They need a certain amount of different nutrients. And by looking at different signs that the soil can give you, mm-hmm. you can determine what they need, plant the proper type of crop, and then we have a, a huge roller that's on the front of our tractor. And when we go in there to plant the next crop, that, tra- that tractor rolls down that previous crop and mashes it to the ground because little microbes can't jump up and eat the stuff when it's on a stem. It's got to be on the earth. Right. Mash it on the ground, and then the microbes eat it. And it is amazing. You can put down a, a litter layer of two, three, four inches of litter, and inside of six or eight weeks, it's gone. And it didn't blow away. Right. It's in the soil. And and it did it naturally. I mean, it's there no, naturally. That's what I was saying about like less labor. Really, you kind of are taking away. You may not need that person to then go and till the land, or oh, definitely. You know, that could save you time. It could save you right. money, and exactly. that's a great thing. Um, is that right. one of the overall goals that you had in mind when you first started this experiment, or like overall? I mean, I mean, you have so many wonderful things that you mentioned that you know this project is providing for you. But what was the overall goal when you set out to do this um, farming? operation this new well, experiment. Our, our first our first goal was I mean we changed our farming practices already and we like I mentioned earlier we met this we, we hit this plateau where we just couldn't get the soil as healthy as we like. We dig up the soil on our on our native ground and it was just you know with the grasslands and it was much more healthy than our farm ground. So we knew we were doing something wrong. So it was we entered in a discovery process to try to figure out what that was. Mm-hmm. And then we started learning some of these other things and started seeing how they worked in the natural world where we have, you know, various species and then where the grasses get pushed down when the buffalo lay it on them and how healthy the soil is in those places. And we started just putting the pieces together. And, of course, we're a business. We have to make money at this. It has to be a win-win situation. We can't just spend money at this. Mm-hmm. So there's some there's some peripheral benefits also. We're going to use less fuel. Uh, we're going to spend less time out there tilling. Well, our tractors will last longer. We won't have the wear and tear. We're going to spend some more money on seed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's not all bad. We've, we're supporting some other local farmers yes, doing that to so help got... build the economy instead of, you know, pumping oil out of the ground. I'd rather have a farmer raising some veg seed for me. Definitely. And, you know, you're helping your your, your, your soil, of course, and, you know, oh, yeah. more biodiversity is the, is the best thing that you can do yep. in your land. Um, now, I guess I guess my question is, um, are you moving around the herds um, into these different areas of lands where you're doing the, this experiment? Are mm-hmm. you, are you um, is that, how is that going? Well, the, the bison are, in the, in the, for the purpose of the discussion, think of the bison as the combine. They're the harvesting crew. Uh-huh. Okay, so when we have a crop that's up that needs to be harvested, we move the bison in. And they eat it, mash it down, mix it with the manure and the urine, and then we move them out. Right. So you're harvesting so, in another way that, like, a, a vegetable farmer would harvest. They would harvest their, you know, crop to then go sell to the farmer's market. You're talking about harvest in the sense that you're harvesting for your bison to eat. Right. That's what we do. Now, the fellows that we visit with in North Dakota, they do these, these crop mixes, and they sell... For instance, they would sell the the wheat seed. Let's just say they sell wheat. Mm-hmm. So they would plant other cover crops in with that wheat. 
that would be maybe this, the plant wouldn't be making seed at the same time the wheat would. So when the when the combine goes through there, it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. Or if it is making seed, it's it's such a different size seed than the wheat that it actually gets kicked out. So that's not an issue. So there are ways to adapt this to to uh, produce uh, commodity crops also for human consumption. But our our goal is to get our crop lands healthy again. Mm-hmm without fertilizer, without any chemicals, so that should we decide to raise commodity crops to sell for human consumption, we can without the advent of fertilizer. I was just going to ask, actually, you know, um, not that this would ever, you know, be something that I hope would happen to you, but if there was like, you know, a farm that is doing something similar to this that couldn't continue to produce or, you know, um, market their meats, then they could turn an operation like this into more of like a commodity raising operation for these crops like wheat and um, corn and things of that sort. Certainly, certainly. And what this does for us, after a year or two of experimentation with this, then it will open up a lot of other acres for us. Right now, we, we pretty much got the grassland in our part of the country that we can get. But there's quite a bit of dry land farm ground out there. Exactly. And you can, um, with all this data and research that you're bringing back, you know, from you said over a century ago, you're, you know, making it more modern. Your next step could be to consult people on how to raise these crops in, um, mm-hmm. you know, the way that you have just explained to us. So that's Certainly. that's uh, a big, you know, step forward, I think, for everyone, hopefully. Well, we're real, real excited about this, as you can tell, and uh, uh, the potentials of it, not only for us, but for lots of people is uh and for the environment is is really really big and and we'll document it we'll take pictures and and uh keep things posted on facebook and and people can post on there their experiences or ask their questions and and uh we're real good about answering stuff on facebook so that's a good uh, a good tool for for getting the word out have you found that facebook has helped you in your marketing efforts i mean can you notice a substantial increase in sales well, I can't say substantial. It's helped some. We haven't had it up very long. We've only had it up maybe two months now. Yeah, maybe you've not even that. Got one hundred and fifty-three fans already. That's not bad at all. Yeah, I think yeah, it's one hundred and sixty-three. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lorenzo. Yeah, and you know, someone's got a most, fact check around here. <laughs> uh, most Facebook pages, I suppose, are like this. But for the first two or three weeks, we get friends and family and people that work for me they're on the payroll they better be my friend you know <laughs> but then i remember the first day we got our first one that that wasn't on the payroll and wasn't related Yay. and uh, you know that's kind of exciting you're so like now, where did this person come from and how do they know who we are great. i don't know who it is it's great <laughs> and then it gets to be really exciting because then they tell other people and right that's the whole social network for you we did a we did a facebook special it was only on facebook here uh oh, i don't know three weeks ago and that went really well i think people People will be looking for that, and we can we'll continue to do some Facebook only specials. I think we did a free shipping for a limited time. Right, we we so. did um, the Hearst Ranch did that on their on their Twitter, um, you know. So I guess that you know Hearst Ranch beef, um, they they did something similar to that. It's a good way to figure out where your um, you know customers are coming from. Mm-hmm. Ken, if if you'll humor me for a second, I still want to bang home this point about how. Cop, crop rotation and polyculture practices are interwoven into the raising of the buffaloes into the, mm-hmm. into the raising of the buffalo. How does this impact the way the buffalo are raised, and how does it not affect the taste profiles? I, I didn't quite understand what what you said there. Well, we use the uh, we use these crop lands primarily in the winter mm-hmm. 
to overwinter our animals during blizzards. Okay. And we use some in the spring and some in the fall. But primarily, they're, I mean, 90% of their life they're out on, on uh, native grassland. Okay. But these But these croplands, um, bison, there's some species that it really makes a difference what they're eating. Like the cattle. The, yeah, cattle to a certain degree, mm-hmm. yes, but pork even more so. Right, pork, like it, the pork or bear, you know, uh, yeah. the same thing. You can have pork that tastes like acorns. Mm-hmm. Like and, the terroir really shows up. Yeah, right. It okay. really, it really passes through in the meat. Why, uh, bison, it, why is that? The, why is that not the case with bison? I don't know. It's you know, it, it, it's much less than cattle, also compared to pork. Mm. Um, interesting. Yeah. So it'd be it interesting to do some research on through. that. I think it might have to do with their, you know, their stomach and digestion, digestion, and and maybe. their rate of conversion. Maybe I even think that's size the of the thing. animal. I mean, I'm just guessing here. <laughs> well, you have to think about rate of conversion also. Like mm-hmm. a chicken eat, can eat five pounds of feed and make a pound of of meat. So chickens are another thing that and that uh, their flavor is highly influenced by what they're eating. Um, pork is, I think, they're at ten to one. And buffalo are about twenty to one, so maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know, and I've you know I really haven't read any studies about why that is. Um, well, it's easy to make bad meat, that's for sure, but mm-hmm. to make good meat, if, because good meat comes from animals that are eating proper nitrogen, proper protein, basically, right. but high in energy, high in carbohydrates, mm-hmm. and uh, so long as an animal is on a diet like that and they're young and the right age and, and they're not stressed, then you'll make good meat. Um, but beyond that, there's not a whole lot of difference. Um, well, while we're on the topic of talking about meat, and we've been going back and forth here, you guys are named the buffalo guys, yet we talk about your bison meat. What <laughs> is the difference? Is it called buffalo? Is it bison? Can you please explain to our listeners and to me and everyone out there, what yeah. is it? Is it bison or is it buffalo? Well, it's, they're truly bison. Uh, they're their own family species and genus, bison, 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 of right. most unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's only two buffalo in the world, and that's the Cape buffalo from Africa and the water buffalo native of, uh, of uh, India. Okay. Those are the two buffalo. These have been nicknamed buffalo by the first explorers that saw them. Uh, we call them buffalo and we market the meat mm-hmm. because everybody's heard of buffalo bill. But no one's ever heard of Bison William. And that was back from when they were, you know, in the Yellowstone parks for the first time, I guess, you know, ranging free. Well, all over. I mean, they went from the Atlantic Ocean all the way up to the northern boreal forest in the Yukon Territory, mm-hmm. all the way to just north of Mexico City, mm-hmm. and well into the Rocky Mountains. They were the, there was over 60 million of them on this continent. They were the most prolific grazing animal on the face of the, face of the earth even greater than any of the herds you see in Africa. Wow. Uh, I mean, there was nothing more like more, more even than, than like, some, of, some, like, yaks and things like that? More than yaks, more than wildebeest, more wildebeest than zebras, more than antelope, Thank you. you name it. Any of them. There were more bison on the earth than, than any of those. Mm. So they were very, very prolific. And, uh, of course, the first explorers saw them were Spanish explorers that saw them when they came up from the south. The first one was actually seen in Montezuma Zoo mm-hmm. when uh, Montezuma was invaded by the Spaniards. And, of course, that was out of the range, though. That was a, a gift to Montezuma from up north. 
Montezuma up north, and it was out of out of its native territory. But the first account was of Spanish explorers. I think they got lost in the Gulf of Mexico on the Texas coast and went inland trying to find something and ran across these great woolly herds of cattle. They didn't know what to call them. <laughs> and there's several different stories as to how they got the name buffalo, uh, but no one really seems to know. Mm-hmm. But that's what stuck. But when you're great, when you're talking about raising them, I always use the term bison because when you get in the, the raising of animals, if I use the term buffalo in the, in the raising of then people think, oh, he's raising Cape buffalo or he's raising water buffalo because right. there are people that, well, I don't know about Cape buffalo, but there are people that raise water buffalo. Uh-huh. So in this conversation, I was talking about both. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I switched back and forth, and I apologize to you and your listeners if I did that. But really, they are bison. That's, that's what, we, what we raise and what we sell. What are some of the challenges faced by bison ranchers that cattle ranchers might not face? In what ways is it easier or more difficult to raise bison? Well, it's easier in the fact that they fit the environment so well. I mean, there's really nothing that Mother Nature can throw them that they haven't seen. Hardy animals. They're very hardy. Cold, snow, wind. Predators are not an issue. You know, where cattle have been on this continent for at the outside you know, maybe since 15 or 1600 in limited amounts. You know, bison have been here at least 10,000 years. They were here the last ice age. They were twice as big, but they were fending off the saber-toothed tiger and and huge lions and huge bears, and these are survivors. They've survived that where lots of other species didn't. So when it comes to weather, they're fine. We don't need barns. I haven't fed any hay to our buffalo cow herd in four years now. We just provide salt, mineral, water, and then we are very particular about how we rotational graze. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, these, these, uh, this farmland that I'm, ta- I'm talking about, we have them do some harvesting for us, some custom harvesting. And uh, so, so that's what's easier about it. What's harder is the marketing of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, if I was in the Good cattle point. business and I've got some bills to pay because my irrigation well, for instance, I had an irrigation well went down two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It wound up costing almost $19,000 to get that fixed. If I was in the cattle business... Uh, I could load up some cattle, and there's a sale within driving distance here two or three days a week, wow. and I could sell them. Uh, same thing goes true. If we get a, if we get a lot of rain and, and it looks like I could stock some more animals, I can go to the sale barn and buy some more and, and you know raise the stocking rate of my ranch. Can't do that in the bison industry. Why do you think the demand for bison is so much less than cattle? I mean, the taste they taste better. And it's better oh, the, for you. It's no, less the demand, cholesterol. The demand isn't less. The demand is more. The supply that, is less. The, the supply, supply is less. Is That's less. what I meant. Yeah. I'm sorry. We went from that 60 million number down to about 800, oh. about 1890. Oh. Only 800, and that wasn't in one spot. That was in five or six different herds. I oh, know. And, uh, and now they've built back to where there's, there's well over half a million. But it's a slow growth. You know, it's, it's slow growth. But the reason that it's growing at the rate it is is because people like to eat them, and it in, encourages ranchers such as myself to raise more of them. So we have a supply problem, and uh, so but expansion is on the horizon, big time expansion. Oh yeah, we yeah everybody tries to grow as fast as they can. We have to balance growth with sales, and uh, you know you have to be careful. Now that I'm in the meat business, I understand that very well. What do you uh, mean you know, now that you're in the meat business? Well, I started out raising these in '87, and we started uh-huh. the meat business in 2000. Oh, okay. <laughs> So, oh, you mean uh, you mean post you mean, you mean processing like, the products after slaughter, yeah, like jerky the meat. and I right. see what you're saying. Exactly. Yep. How do you Before make that, jerky? By the way, I'm, I I really like to know how do you how do you make your buffalo or your bison jerky? Oh, if I told you that, Lorenzo, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's that's, Just, that's secret. Can you tell me in the most vague terms? 
<laughs> sure. I don't want um, to put you on the spot here. That's uh, all right. We, you know, basically the we have two types of jerky. The one that that I like the best. I'll tell you how we do that. That's our sweet peppered one. It's made from buffalo round steak. Mm-hmm. We slice it into thin strips, and then uh, we put it in a machine that uh, tumbles it with spices and seasoning, and then we lay those out on racks and put it in a in a smoking oven, a drying oven that, that cooks with temperature and humidity. Uh, for a set amount of time, and then it comes out of there, cools, and package it. So it's sweet. It's just dried meat with seasoning, and People we don't love use that. any nitrates. People like love that. that. They're all over the all over the Facebook page. They're singing its praises. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, we've had. Uh, yeah, matter of fact, I think a woman just said she she ordered some. She's getting her braces off, and she's gonna. Yeah, <laughs> that's the post I'm referring to. That yeah, is too yeah, she's funny. Gonna, going to celebrate by having jerky so oh man that's great yeah she yeah. couldn't eat it before that would have cost her uh, a lot of money in dental uh-huh. work <laughs> yeah wonderful well ken we're about finishing up here today um, oh just really quickly ken if if someone wanted to obtain some some bison jerky or some of and or any of any of your other products where would one go well the first place is to go to your heritage foods right you guys are offering a package of ours, I do believe. Mm-hmm. But do. then beyond that, go to our website at thebuffaloguys.com, and we have the full listing of hot dogs, sausages, uh, jerky, ribs, steaks, filet mignon, you name it. It's all there, as well as our Facebook page. You can find that there at thebuffaloguys.com. And With we, some special we ship deals, anywhere. too, definitely. Yeah. And we're in about 1,200 grocery stores around the country as well. And there's a list on our website of the stores that we're in, so people can go there and look. Are they more? Are they pretty local to you, or are they all you know, across the country? No, they're they're about everywhere except here. Really? <laughs> yeah, wow. the locals. The locals. Everything that starts in the country takes about 20 years later to come here. I think the first cell phone, you know, they were using them in California and New York, but maybe five, six years later they got here. So <laughs> that's just the way it is. I've realized that we're raising an export product. My neighbors don't understand what I'm doing, but that's okay. There's <laughs> millions of other people in the United States that do. And there most certainly are, and they appreciate it, and the demand is there. So we'll yes. just, uh, you know, keep the good word spreading on the bison and, uh, you know, hope that your research and everything that you find gets uh, published and, you know, more spread. Oh, it'll get published. On yeah. Facebook. Yeah, (laughs) well, past Facebook, I'm sure once you start compiling everything, maybe there'll be a book that we could uh, go ahead and uh, get you going. We'd love it. We want to thank Hearst Ranch. Remember to check us out on the archives, www.heritageradionetwork.com backslash archives. And next week on the Heritage Radio Network's Farmer Part, Charlie Nardozzi, expert uh, gardener, is going to be on with us. So if you have any questions, please feel free to email Heather or Lorenzo at heritageradionetwork.com for our gardening expert, Charlie Nardozzi. Thank you.